my name is Dustin the Clue, and I'm here today with... Well, that's not Django like I thought it was going to be. Uh... No? Uh, okay, first of all, I'm Will Sloan, and this is... Who's he? And he looks just like you and me. Wait, that's the theme song to the classic Corbucci film, Super Fuzz. A classic comedy from 1980 about a cop who gets uh, some sort of nuclear power and he becomes a super cop or a super fuzz, if you will. To use the lingo. And that is the uh, most famous film that Sergio Corbucci, the director of Django, The Great Silent, uh, and The Mercenary is known for. He's a super trooper, really super duper. Are we just gonna sit here and listen to the whole song? <laughs> okay, I'll turn I'll turn it off finally. Uh, sorry, that's a hilariously unprofessional way to start the podcast. But uh, I I just wanted to bring that music up because first I love it. You know, even now, Super Fuzz is the movie I think of when I think of Sergio Corbucci. <laughs> is it? Uh, well, actually, probably not. But <laughs> probably Django. <laughs> probably Django, and then The Great Silence, and then Super Fuzz. Now, yeah. uh, Sergio Corbucci, um, along with Sergio Leone and Sergio Salima, is the other great spaghetti western director is he because a man named burt reynolds would say that he's the wrong sergio <laughs> well burt reynolds uh is dead now and he knows nothing okay burt wow a, a harsh burn against I'll burt. Tell you something about burt reynolds the man had a sewer of a filmography <laughs> he did have a sewer. one bad movie after another so what is he he thought boogie nights was the wrong movie to make so. yeah you know what you're 100 percent true yeah. and sergio corbucci Gave Burt Reynolds a shot in a little film called Navajo Joe. Um, Before we get into Navajo Joe, some preliminary thoughts on Sergio Carbucci, who he is, why he's important. He was working at the same time as the other great Sergio. Mm -hmm. So Lima. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He never quite got the acclaim and still doesn't quite get the acclaim of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, Once Upon a Time in the West. But his films at their best are almost as good. He has a bigger and wobblier filmography. I mean, I mean, he's made more films. The thing about uh, Leone is that he made big, epic movies that knew they were epic. They were long. They just got bigger and bigger as they went along as well. Mm-hmm. While Corbucci was just a, like a workaholic, show up for work do your job before he made all those westerns that he was famous for he made a dozen melodramas and comedies starring the likes of toto and you know sergio leone's filmography he made what six or seven films and there's only one there that's like oh there's a few obvious no but what i mean is there's only one obvious hack movie yes like uh the colossus of Rhodes, his first movie Uh uh-huh whereas a lot of these italian exploitation guys that you love have reams and reams of subpar films and you sort of know them only for that upper tier of their filmography and that's what Sergio Carbucci is yeah people know him as we previously mentioned Django The Great Silence uh The The, Mercenary Mercenary, yeah and you know and maybe Navajo Joe as well and one or two others yeah I mean even Corbucci in the year that he directed Django the film that he is the most famous for he also directed Navajo Joe and another film, I believe it was A Golden Pistol for Ringo or something around that title. That sounds about right. I mean, all these spaghetti westerns, they all have titles like A Second to Live, A Minute to Die. And we should point out that after Django came out, there were 150 films that had 
Django in the title, even though they had nothing to do with the Sergio Kubrucci original. Django, prepare a coffin. Yeah. Django, kill. Uh, Shoot J- first, ask Django later. Or, you yeah. know, whatever. Django versus Ringo. Ringo being another character that appeared in the movies A Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo, mm-hmm. and then had another million movies named after him. Now, Sergio Kubrucci's movies were, you know, not particularly well-received in their time. Nope. And there is still, even though he has been somewhat reclaimed, there's still something about him that feels kind of dirty and disreputable. His westerns are violent and nasty and bleak, and, you know, his is easily the darkest west. We should take a step even further back and explain what spaghetti westerns are, which is what Sergio Leone and uh, Sergio Corbucci are famous for. I think I would describe them as not necessarily, like, a demystifying, anti-westerns but just the movie brat version of the westerns mm-hmm. Sergio Corbucci in an interview would say stuff like you know I wanted to make westerns that I loved growing up as a kid take all the boring parts out and also make them more violent the way that when you're a kid and you play with your friends those movies are super violent because you want to push them to the next level and people like uh, Sergio Corbucci that's what he was doing with his films in the early 60s of course the western was kind of uh, on his last legs in Hollywood it was you know people like John Wayne making their sort of flabbier late period efforts. Um, But, you know, the kids who grew up with these movies, particularly in Italy, and sort of these movies were their view of America, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, they made these movies that repurposed some of the old tropes in a darker sort of way. When people talk about Westerns now, they talk about these kind of deconstruction of Westerns. And you could say that a lot of Spaghetti Westerns kind of did do that. I think the title, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, sort of invites that interpretation. But it's it's also more like myth-making when it comes to Westerns. It's not about a deconstruction of showing how it really is. It's like, I want to show you these figures, and I want to make them epic and giant. The way that a kid views Westerns. At the same time, they will also be very violent, cynical, and the heroes will not be good or bad they'll be gray down the middle but that's what makes them so much more special for the viewers that see them and so you know not to get all armchair sociologist here to uh, to revive one of my favorite phrases but you know (laughs) your favorite characters the spaghetti westerns were of course being made during the time of vietnam they were being made during the time when people like martin luther king and malcolm x uh were being assassinated so they're heavily informed by that moment. Like, There's a whole spaghetti western that is a recreation of the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. So, like, they were very aware of the political time or what had come before and kind of putting them in this familiar genre. I was reading Alex Cox's book, 10,000 Ways to Die, and he said that, you know, when he was a young school child, he would see the Hollywood westerns and uh, he would he would be hoping to see some sex. There's never any sex. No. Uh, But he was reasonably hoping to see some violence. And old John Wayne was not really delivering even that at this point. And the Spaghetti Westerns really were violent. And that's why they were a touch disreputable at the time. So Sergio Leone's uh, A Fistful of Dollars comes out in 1964. This is the one that kicks it all off. Um, before uh, Sergio Corbucci was making melodramas. He had been working for a long time, but he was friends with Sergio Leone. They had worked together as assistant directors. They knew each other. And supposedly they both went to the theater together and saw Yojimbo and were like, we want to make that. But Leone beat 
Corbucci to the punch. Yojimbo, of course, is Akira Kurosawa's film, which um, was also heavily informed by Hollywood Westerns. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting how these things like, you know, one thing feeds into the other and then feeds into the other. I mean, A Fistful of Dollars is a ripoff of Yojimbo to the point that I believe that uh, Kurosawa sent a um, worded letter, if not some lawyers, uh, Leone's way. <laughs> yeah, uh, but... Of course, you know, A Fistful of Dollars was an international phenomenon, which led to Django. But after all those years as a journeyman filmmaker, 1966 was the year that Carbucci sort of came into his own with two Westerns that would be two of the defining films in his filmography, Django and Navajo Joe. Let's talk about Navajo Joe first, because... That is one that has the lesser reputation, specifically from Mr. Reynolds, who would say stuff like, it's the worst movie I've ever made, and they could only show it in prisons and mental asylums. You know why I think he said that? I think he was just jealous of Clint Eastwood. Uh-huh. I absolutely agree with you, yeah. yes. Uh, pro- probably to his dying day was jealous of Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yep. I mean, they were friends back on the lot when they were, like, extras. Yeah, so. they made uh, City Heat together. But, <laughs> yeah. but hey, that's a digression. Burt Reynolds plays the uh, title character Navajo Joe, who is the only survivor of the native village that was massacred by a gang of bandits and he goes around an avenging angel for this village burt reynolds in this film wears brown face and while he would claim that he has some um, native american ancestry this has never really been proven and whatever way you want to go about it this is problematic in i this mean film. don't we all have native <laughs> yeah, american ancestry in kind of the elizabeth warren sense yes you know. <laughs> but in this film he plays an avenging angel and he plays the kind of ultimate spaghetti western hero not on screen that much, just kind of shows up to do some stuff, kill some villains. We spend most of the time with the uh, main antagonists and the townsfolk who are afraid for their lives. Uh, by the way, I think Bert, uh, when he does show up, uh, he does some pretty incredible stunts in this movie, like jumping from horses. And he is doing off. so many crazy stunts in this film that you can <laughs> see it's his face. He goes over the top of a train and, like, lifts himself into the car to, like, fire a gun. Of the Corbucci westerns that I've seen, this is kind of the jolliest one. It's it's kind of a... You, you can imagine this one being the one that's, like, we're going to get a big western crossover audience with this. It's the most comic book one. Like, probably the most pop western. Yeah. It's not really bothered with any kind of, ah, look at the cycle of violence or cynicism. It is still violent, mm-hmm. but in more like a, like, four color, like, ah, it's the good guys versus the bad guys yeah, kind of way. And Navajo Joe is a superhero. He's yeah. played by fucking Burt Reynolds. And yeah. It's, and it's bright and it's got stunts. And, I, you know, I really enjoyed this movie. I was surprised that it doesn't have a great reputation. I'm r- really surprised as well. I think maybe Burt Reynolds putting it down. I mean, it's not the brown face because people did not care back then. I mean, you know, it's probably not in my top 10 spaghetti westerns or anything, but it's got all the things I like in a spaghetti western. It has all the fun stuff. Yeah. No deconstructing here either. Just, you know, good guys versus bad guys with that extra layer of gore and a massive body count. And it also has like a, a very big scope, which is very different from Corbucci's other big 1966 Western, Django, which in turn... Django! Said, <laughs> Why have you always been alone? You know, that song is actually not composed by Inu Morricone because he did not do the score for Django. Yeah. Um, was that song commissioned for this movie or did Yes, just... it was. Okay. Uh, all the best Westerns have their own theme songs uh, sung by someone who English is not necessarily their first language, but mm-hmm. they're going to power through. And, you know, Django is, I guess, considered the most famous, uh, I, I think, the most famous non-Leone Western. But again, 
as with Carbucci, it, it still has this vaguely disreputable uh, feeling to it because it's so grim and violent. And it was never a hit in America. It, mm. it was released very briefly in L.A. It was banned, supposedly, in the U.K. for violence. Until the 90s. Yeah, and it was popular in other places in Europe. It did, however, feature Franco Nero's star-making performance. Ah, old blue eyes himself. He plays the title character, Django, a, a wandering loner who comes into this ghost town, basically. It's just this muddy town that's been ravaged by the Civil War. Corbucci at the time wanted it to be snow, but he didn't have an opportunity to do that. But he will get back to that in a movie from now. Yeah. So Django, you missed a very important part, is that he drags a coffin behind him uh, at the beginning of the movie. And you don't know what's in it. He doesn't really say, like most spaghetti Western heroes, he doesn't talk too much. Uh, But he's in this town with this coffin and the town... Basically, the only population of the town is the local brothel and its inhabitants. And the rest of the town is just this muddy puddle that is the home of a turf war between, on the one hand, an American gang of ex-Civil War soldiers, racists, yeah, uh, run by... They uh, wear Ku Klux Klan hoods, but they're red. Yeah, and, and they are presiding over this area. But then there's also the Mexican bandits on the other side. And Django finds himself sort of, you know, much like Yojimbo or the man with no name. Sort of caught between these rival gangs and trying to play the gangs off each other. Well, I mean, Django wants revenge on the uh, racists, and he takes it pretty fast because, like most spaghetti western heroes, Django is invincible. He can shoot the gun behind his back, he can do all kinds of really cool shit until the movie calls for him to be injured. Mm. I remember watching the Sergio Leone westerns and being like, wow. These films have such a set structure. Like at this part, Clint Eastwood is going to be beaten up. (laughs) And it happens in almost all spaghetti westerns because they're all kind of riffing off those three original ones. And it happens the same way in Django. He essentially, we learn, wants revenge. And he could take revenge if he wanted to. But he doesn't because he gets too greedy. (laughs) I'd just like to quote from Alex Cox again because I think he gets at something about the uh, Corbucci versus Leone filmographies. Leone's West was one of uneasy alliances between godlike men, cat-like, innately violent Westerners, cold, technological Easterners, and Mexican bandits. Corbucci's West was a world without alliances, in which one man, usually crippled, maimed, or blind, was forced to confront two gangs of equal villainy. In Leone's world, money was always the goal and usually attainable. In Corbucci's world, money was mentioned, then quickly forgotten in a downward spiral of torture, destruction, and loss. Well, in Django, money and greed is what takes Django down. Because he could escape and get what what he wants and leave and be happy. But, you know, he he goes too far. Well, he wants to start a new life for himself. He wants to, like, never again have to worry. Yeah. And he wants to take his, you know, sex worker girlfriend with him, potentially... And nope, everything goes bad. And in probably one of the most brutal uh, torture sequences in the popular spaghetti westerns, his hands are broken beyond repair. So, uh, you know, I've seen this movie three or four times. Uh, I love this movie and I loved it even more now. Maybe I was just in the right mood for it today, but there was something about its overwhelming, despairing tone Mm. (laughs) that that really resonated with me. I mean, you know, uh, the John Ford Westerns that were such a big influence on these spaghetti Western guys, John Ford uh, really believed in family and community. And there's absolutely none of that. However else John Ford might have influenced Carbucci, Corbucci didn't believe in community. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Django's final message seems to be like, 
leaving the violent world behind is the only way to keep going to put mm-hmm. down your gun because if you're Django and you are the best like he it seems like he could win the civil war by himself and the only reason he gets caught is because he lets his guard down because he's trying to go after money mm-hmm. and it hurts the people close to him and hurts him which leads to probably in my opinion the most memorable scene in the film which is when he has to take on the bad guys in a cemetery but both his hands are broken mm-hmm. so we watch him for what seems like an eternity try to put a gun with broken hands hands on the top of a gravestone and he every time he's just about to do it the gun tumbles back to the ground there are very few settings in this Mm -hmm. movie it's almost kind of like a stage play actually uh uh just in terms of the scope of it i mean all you have are like this this muddy horrible town and you know the way uh Corbucci shoots the town there's a lot of atmosphere like like he he films this this ugly town in a very beautiful way uh you something know. that caught my interest on this uh viewing is that Corbucci didn't shoot the film in the like technoscope or super widescreen that Leone's famous for he actually shot in the European widescreen ratio which is 166 mm-hmm. which actually gives a lot more room on the top and bottom and the sides are smaller and you know it makes sense cuz this is not a movie with a great scope no you know, it's it's, it's not- a cramped movie and you, you're really looking at these faces I mean Leone was so famous for the close-ups that he would do of Clint Eastwood or Lee Van Cleef and you know Corbucci's doing the same thing but the people are even more miserable than in any of those other films and you know if there's I guess a couple of like glimmers that keep the movie from being just an utterly despairing experience there's the gallows humor of the fact that you know these two groups are fighting over what is basically nothing well Corbucci liked to say that when he makes these movies he believes that there's a difference between grotesquerie and cruelty and that he wanted to lean more toward the side of grotesquerie because you know we say that like the film is cynical and downbeat but I think Corbucci has joy in what he's doing I read some interviews where he's like ah you have to figure out different ways to kill people you can't just kill them the same way each time well there's a very memorable scene involving an ear in this film (laughs) yes being cut off ah shades of reservoir dogs perhaps Perhaps. then it goes one step further and and the man whose ear got cut off is forced to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> and we may say, you know, this is not cannibal apocalypse by any stretch of the imagination or cannibal holocaust. Mm-hmm. It is just like grimy and it's gross, but it still has all the aesthetics of the spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you know that Roberto Deato, the director of Cannibal Holocaust, was the AD on this film? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Interesting. He was. Uh, you know, the other kind of uh, spark of humanity in Django, I think, also come in Franco Nero's piercing blue eyes oh my god and they look like they're cgi'd in (laughs) i I mean i think uh nero is very well used in the film you know nero has a lot of you know natural charisma um similar to how clint eastwood does but Corbucci is always framing him as you know looking up from under his hat and then whenever he looks up from under his hat he stares into the camera like i don't think he blinks in this movie (laughs) Yeah, uh, or it doesn't feel like he does. And I mean, that's the same thing, isn't it? And, you know, like this is a movie with just so much like gray and brown and and blood red. But then you got his eye just staring right into the camera. uh, Piercing you. And it's got that great theme song. Django. Uh So Corbucci's other like super famous Western is The Great Silence. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can talk about The Great Silence without spoiling the thing it's most famous for. So if you want to watch the movie without hearing any of our critical thoughts, uh, go do it now and then come back. And please do. I knew how it ended before I watched it. Uh, did you know for sure? Or could you just tell? Oh, I knew. I knew because okay. I had read it. Because uh, that's what it's famous for. Yeah. Like, you can't read about The Great Silence without reading 
about its ending. Mm. Uh, so this movie is star Jean-Louis Trignat, who uh, most famously appeared in... He was in My Night at Mods, mm. uh, as well as more recently, Michael Haneke's Amour. That's right. Um, and, and he's worked with all the great European art house guys. The joke goes that um, he said, Corbucci, I can't speak any English. I'm not very good at it. And Corbucci went, ah, don't worry, we'll make you a mute character, which is a ridiculous statement because Corbucci was famous, like all Italian films, they shot without sync sound. Mm-hmm. And because we're international cast, we all spoke different languages. And they would just say, one, two, Two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, when they would do their lines. And then somebody else would dumb them later. But in this film, Jean-Louis Trignat plays a gunslinger with his throat slit who comes to a snowy town of prospectors <laughs> uh, looking for revenge. He's quickly hired to kill a local bounty hunter, Loco, or some versions, the character's name is Tigrero, played <laughs> by Klaus Kinski, who's a bounty hunter, a completely amoral bounty hunter, who um, is sort of working in cahoots with, so, you you know, the state has a really corrupt governor who's killing all the poor and dispossessed people sort of under the guise that they're bandits. And so he can take their land as well. <laughs> yes. And uh, Kinski is out sort of, you know, uh, killing people who are allegedly bandits who just have land. And, you know, one of the people he kills is a black man and the black man's wife hires Trantignant, hires him to kill uh, Klaus Kinski. Now, also working in this town, there's a kindly sheriff uh, who, of course, eventually ends up getting killed by Klaus Kinski. And, you know, Kinski is part of a network of bandits, basically, who take over this town. And uh, I guess now we're going to get into spoiler territory. So this film is famous for... Uh, it's in your Morricone score, like all great spaghetti westerns, for its novel setting of being set in the snow. And, you know, if you've seen Django Unchained, as I'm sure you have, the snowy sections of that movie are heavily derived from yeah, this. Yeah, and you also have The Hateful Eight, which looks exactly like this film as well. Yeah. And they're wearing very similar costumes. Yeah. And so the film, like we said, has that spaghetti structure. Uh, Silence gets his hands broken, so he can't fire his guns anymore. Oh, how is he going to pull the Django out of this one to save the townspeople that Klaus Kinski's holding hostage? Well, he does not. And he gets killed. And Klaus Kinski walks away unharmed with all of the bandits. And that's how the movie ends. And it's essentially a foregone conclusion that is uh, it? silence is going to die. There's so many other spaghetti westerns where the hero just pulls it out. I guess you're right, but but it's like... I think you're looking at it from knowing how it ends. You know what? Maybe I am. Yeah. Because, because the whole meaning of the film... Before Silence goes in for the showdown, his hand has been broken. Like, like Django. <laughs> uh, like Django. Um, but he says, I don't care that my hand's broken. I'm going to go in and I'm going to fight Klaus Kinski anyway. He doesn't say this because he's mute. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> you see it in his eyes. But you see it in his eyes. Yeah. And by the way, two great performances in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously great. Like uh, Kinski as the villain. Uh, honestly, I, I think he's every bit as good as he is in the Herzog movies in this movie. Well, there's like a softness to him. Like, it would have been easy for him to be, like, the angry, chewing up the scenery Kinski. That's not what he does. He plays it like, this is his job. He's not going to play by the rules. It's almost, like, not even personal either what he's doing. And he's sort of bemused by everything also. Like, he's kind of having fun. Um, And, And so, like, when the movie, the end of the movie happens, I can just imagine seeing it for the first time and not knowing anything, what it's about, and being like, what the hell? Because I saw that happen. To my good friend Matthew Kumar when I watched the movie with him. (laughs) He had no idea and he was pissed. 
Yeah. <laughs> he hated the ending. Well, He's like, what the fuck was that? I mean, it definitely took me off guard the first time I saw it. Yeah. Uh, You're like, okay, what's going to happen after this? Nothing. It's credits. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can skip to the DVD where there's a very funny, goofy alternate ending. Well, this ending is one of the reasons why the movie was never distributed, mm-hmm. really, in the West. It was sort of unofficially remade as Joe Kidd with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, it, uh, which is also set in the snow, and the Clint Eastwood character has the same gun mm-hmm. that um, Silence uses in this movie. And, you know, trying to understand the ending a bit more because again it could end like Django it could end Mm -hmm. uh, happily but Corbucci at the time was apparently very influenced by the deaths of both Che Guevara and Malcolm X who he regarded as these martyrs who they were almost like predestined to die it's like like Malcolm X was obviously going to die and yet he kept going out there anyway and giving his message when silence walks up to Kinski he doesn't even have a weapon he doesn't have anything and he just gets shot in the head and dies. Mm-hmm. And then all the village people get killed afterwards as well. Yeah. Like it's like there's no victory in this film. And what's heroic about it, or Corbucci would regard it as heroic, is the fact that even knowing he was going to die, he, and, he, went he went out ran, anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on that note, talking about what many people consider Corbucci's masterpiece, let's move on to what obviously we consider his greatest work. Super fuzz. Super, super. So uh, I should give a little bit of context in that the Spaghetti Westerns, essentially their big popularity started in 1964 with A Fistful of Dollars. And the death knell was a movie called They Call Me Trinity that starred a Franco Nero lookalike named Terrence Hill. Not only does he look like Franco Nero, the producers uh, a few years before knew that and they cast him in a Django film <laughs> because he has that same facial features. And so they call me Trinity, which started a kind of comedy Western cycle with Terrence Hill and this other uh, portly actor named Bud Spencer just killed the genre, killed Sergio Cubucci's Western career. And he actually became a director of Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer comedies. Mm-hmm. And so in 1980, Corbucci found himself directing a film in America, starring uh, the actor Terrence Hill, who killed his Western career. And that film was called Super Fuzz. Now, we saw Super Fuzz for the first time maybe 10 years ago at University of Toronto at Innes College had, you know, the annual cult night Mm -hmm. where, you know, back then the Cinema Studies Student Union used to actually have 35 millimeter prints of movies that they showed. Let's be honest. They still have 35 millimeter prints of movies. They just don't show them. Well, it's too bad. Anyway, so that night it was a triple feature of Super Fuzz, Barbarella, and I think Dolomite. Perhaps. I mean, I don't know if I was there because I saw Super Fuzz, but I did not see Barbarella and I did not see Dolomite that night. I'm just certain that Barbarella was the same night. Okay, because I've never seen Barbarella, so I don't think it was oh. that night. Unless I just watched Super Fuzz and left. Or yeah, saw possibly Super you watched left. Super Fuzz and left. Yeah. Um, but they had a print of Super Fuzz and I remember Peter came up and he said, you know, none of us have seen this movie, but that's a great trailer. <laughs> Peter Kaplowski, yeah, yeah. programmer of Midnight Madness. Yeah, uh, who comes up on every podcast, I think. <laughs> yep, um, pretty much. Uh, anyway, so, and Super Fuzz on folded before our eyes and uh, you know I feel like Mr. Bernstein in Citizen Kane where it's like you know I bet a month hasn't gone by that I haven't thought of that film <laughs> you, you didn't rewatch it for this podcast oh, I went on YouTube and I watched like you know highlights and stuff because <laughs> I sat down and watched it with my friend uh, Duncan Bruce and he's a big like aficionado of like Italian stuff and any of those 70s 80s comedies and he, we just both ate it up it's honestly so fun I mean it's this goofy kind of slapdash movie that Terrence Hill and Ernest Borgnine play two cops. And Terrence Hill gets 
hit by a nuclear bomb, essentially. And his powers include anything psychic. He's invulnerable. He can break through walls. Yeah, super out strong. Windows. Uh, but uh, there's one little problem. If he sees the color red, he loses all his powers. Which really doesn't make sense because the color red is everywhere. <laughs> yes. It's like, it's unavoidable. It, fuck, it's in the color spectrum. <laughs> Red's there even when you don't notice there's it. There's some really funny scenes, though, where he's talking to his um, captain. He's like, oh, let me show you. I have powers. And he jumps out the window yes. and you just hear <laughs> crunch. And he looks out and he's like landed on the car. He's like, oh, and it's because there's a red mailbox there. Well, the movie starts like in media res. There are flashback scenes, but it starts with him. He's on death row, but they've tried to put him in the chair four times already because each time uh, it hasn't worked. Yeah. <laughs> and he just explains everything that went on, which is in the vein of all these Italian comedies, it's very like silly slapstick all over the place. There's a scene where he talks to a fish. <laughs> That's right. There's a scene where they try to electrocute him and he electrocutes the people watching him, yeah, I so assume, good. killing them. And then he jumps out uh, of the prison by crashing through the wall. Now, that all sounds good. But what you've also got to remember is this is an Italian movie that's pretending to be American. Yes. So it has that weird disconnect. <laughs> yeah. But you have Ernie Borgnine there oh, yelling. Well, it must be an American movie. <laughs> yeah. Ernest Borgnine is in it. That, what are you doing? There's that whole classic scene towards the end when he's like on top of like what a hot air balloon. Uh, it's a uh, bubblegum balloon oh, that of course, Super yes. Fuzz blew up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Ernest Borgnine's like, I'm on my way down. There's also a great scene where uh, Super Fuzz, like he thinks his number is up. He's like about to, he's about to surrender, but he shoots a gun and he hits a passing rocket. Yep. That makes the nuclear bomb go off. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you can uh, tell, this is a film of many wonders that doesn't have the touch of the man that made The Great Silence or Django or even Navajo Joe. It's just a silly, I guess, journeyman job. So, you know, Corbucci's career, the, the golden period of it shone briefly but brightly. He was actually pretty disappointed with his career because while he worked a lot, he thought Django was one of his weaker films mm. and it didn't, it wasn't received as well financially as he would have hoped. And The Great Silence was just a straight up flop mm-hmm. and all over. Like it didn't even do well in Italy. So that while he could keep working, like reading interviews and watching documentaries on him, you get the sense that he never really worked in the way that he wanted to. And I mean, I can imagine him being very jealous of his old colleague, Sergio yeah. Leone, who, I mean... Uh, Sergio Leone has this small but impeccable filmography and in the 80s he was making Once Upon a Time in America I yeah mean, how can you not be jealous of that and while Corbucci was making all these other films super fuzz yeah people you know were just trashed and while Corbucci like he did get that critical attention when he passed away in 1990 his wife said that he didn't really feel it mm. like People may have been talking um, like in zines and stuff like that, but it's not like these deluxe editions of Django and other films of that ilk. Like it, it hadn't reached him yet, which is a real bummer, especially for someone who worked so long and so hard throughout his career. But you know what? He's still just a little bit disreputable. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a beautiful thing. All right. So as per usual, you can send us um, letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we talk about gods. No, we don't. We talk about Mothra, everyone's favorite Godzilla character. That's right, folks. We watched the 1996 classic Rebirth of Mothra. Me and Will had never seen it. Whoa. I know. You want to hear our reactions? You're going to have to pay $5 a month by becoming a member at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. We should also note that there is a Discord server, which is a chat room for people not in the know. And if you become a Patreon subscriber, you can hang out in it and chat 
chat with all the other important Cinema Club fans. And I'm trying to set a date now that I'm going to try on Thursdays. I, I It will happen this Thursday that I'll be there on 7 o'clock and I'll stay there for a couple hours. We can chit-chat. We can talk about this episode, talk about your favorite westerns, sure. whatever you want. And maybe even Will will show up. Who knows? No you know, promises. I, I should, I should uh, come in more. It's a nice community. Uh, I'll have I'll have the Discord on one window, and then the other window will be porn. And then <laughs> yes. I can uh, multitask. Water power. Yeah, I can multitask. And forced entry. <laughs> All the best films. Uh, and so you can become a member by just going to Important Cinema Club, by going to patreon.com slash the Important Cinema Club. So... Our first letter is from Michael Hendra, loyal listener, and it goes, Important Cinema Tattoos. Hey, fellas, it's Mike Hendra, the tattoo guy. So I actually have a tattoo-related question for you both. This is a bit of context, by the way. Michael got a tattoo of our logo on his body. But I should note, he has multiple tattoos, and he owns a tattoo shop. Yeah. <laughs> so, But it's still an incredible honor. <laughs> it is uh, a great honor. And the letter continues, Regardless of how you personally feel about receiving a tattoo, have you ever considered getting a movie-related one? If so, what would you get? Have you any now? I envision Justin having a beautiful Jackie Chan back piece, or at the very least, a small Bruce Lai portrait on his chest. Will, on the other hand, would have a subtle nod to Curly Joe on his kneecaps. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that because my mind was racing right now. What would be my tattoo? What, Is what it Curly Joe? Not Curly Joe, but I think I would have Mo Larry Curly on my lower back. <laughs> really? And like say, in, oh, it was a crazy spring break mistake, you know? <laughs> so when you wear, like, the crop top, you can see at the back below. I'm sure people out there do have a Curly Joe tattoo, but wouldn't you want to be part of that family? <laughs> yeah. How would you differentiate him from Curly Joe versus... You, you know what? I'll get a tattoo that's all the third Stooges. So <laughs> yeah. it'll be Shamp, it'll be Joe Besser, Curly Joe, and it'll be Ted Healy, just to throw and, and, and Joe Besser's going, not so hard. Yeah, I'll have a little speech bubble with their memorable quotes. <laughs> Uh, jokes aside, there's countless ways to show off your love for cinema, and you both do that on a daily basis anyway. Oh. Thank you very much, Michael. Shucks. I hope all is well, and my tattoo of your two amazing faces healed up nicely, by the way. I was hoping to leave, like, a terrible scar that never healed. My dream is to someday have you both sign your faces, and I'll tattoo those two. Hashtag life goals. Yours truly, Mike. That's well, scary. <laughs> it, it is scary. It's a very attainable life goal. Uh, I like to say that my uh, signature is very easy to form. So, uh, if you look around, I'm sure you can probably find an example of it. And as far as cinema tattoos, I had one a little while ago, and it just dropped my mind, and I don't know what I would get instead. Um, I mean, if you get a tattoo, I don't know if I'd be, like, a big full back tattoo guy. You know, the thing that I think, uh, among other things that Me Too has revealed, it's that... Really, you can't trust anyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so I would think, like, God, was there a time in my life when, like, a Woody Allen tattoo would have been really cool? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, could you I was wondering where you were going with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, or just, just like, anyone. You I, know who I get a tattoo of? The Big G. Just a nice little Godzilla, Godzilla tattoo. Yeah, yeah. he's not going to get me tattooed at <laughs> no, any time. Yeah. But, like, you know there are people with Bill Cosby tattoos out there. Oh, you do. And it's, like, right a now. goofy, like, Bill Cosby tattoo. Wearing a sweater and he's got Jello and <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know if I would, could do an actor. It would probably have to be like a character of something. Will's looking around my room right now. I'm trying to think, is there anything on your shelf that, oh, uh, I don't know, maybe the little tramp speaking of pedophiles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's dead, right? So, yeah, so it's okay. Statue of limitations. Just Matt Farley's face on my shoulder. <laughs> 
okay, so Matt Farley's face would be a great tattoo because it's a conversation piece. People yeah. would say, what's that? You'd say, oh, do you know the guy who wrote 20,000 songs on Spotify? Yeah. Well, <laughs> he makes movies too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, scan this QR code and you can listen to, oh wait, QR codes don't exist? I did not sync this tattoo through. I know, let's get Matt Farley's phone number and, and tattoo it on our bodies <laughs> because I think he would like that. Both of our tattoos. Uh, I'm going to get the important cinema club forever on my back. Yeah. No, it needs to be somewhere visible. So, Well, um, I mean, if we ever have a dramatic falling out, that would be really bad. <laughs> yeah, but that's what tattoos are good for. Right, and then you'll it'll change it so it says wino forever. <laughs> so it'll be like, um, uh, I don't know how I would change a porn cinema club, but to something else. Uh, you know what? I'll think about it. I'm looking around the room right now. Do you remember that guy who sent us a letter that said important anima club? That's, <laughs> yeah. that Is that what you're going to get tattooed to? on yeah. your back? Yeah. yeah, but it's going to be like an arrow pointing down to your asshole. <laughs> Good stuff. Michael, we hope to meet you one day and we will both sign your tattoos. You yes. want it big? Probably small, right? You don't want it. Yeah. Uh, God, th- that would feel like a lot of pressure. Of so like I'm... how you're going to sign well, your Well, I would have to make sure it's a really good signature. And he's like, I want you to sign it with my tattoo needle <laughs> to add that much extra pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again very much uh, for the letter. So next week... In an attempt to get more listeners and to talk about movies that people can go, oh, I can watch that right now. We're going to be talking about Carol Reed, who Criterion just posted three of his movies, Odd Man Out, Third Man, and The Fallen Idol on the Criterion channel, which I'm sure every listener listening to this is subscribed to it. Does Carol Reed have a place in your film watching beyond The Third Man? What was that music I just did? Yeah, The Third Man. That's right. I mean, have you seen another film by Carol Reed other than The Third Man? I'm actually not sure if I have. So this will be a process of discovery for me because like... Third Man for me was always sort of like... Oh, Orson Welles directed all the great scenes, right? I mean, that's the thing. It was like, I, I liked... The, I saw... I got to the Third Man because of the Orson Welles connection. Mm-hmm. Not As most people reading. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited to explore. All right. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, I am Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'm going to have to interrupt here for a second to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, which include Patrick Cardinal, Maka Nitipasanan, Chris Turton, Ted Kelly, Jack Fenor, BDA, Darren Cowlin, Guy Davidson, Juan Pablo Meza Artman, and Zachary Hilton. Thank you all for becoming Patreon subscribers. I really appreciate it, especially because I'm looking to get some new equipment to be able to improve the podcast. So if you're thinking of becoming a Patreon subscriber now, this is the perfect opportunity to do it. We are so close to hitting 200 Patreon subscribers. And when we hit that number, I can assure you that something special is going to happen. So if you've been on the fence until now, or you were a Patreon subscriber, and for reasons out of your control, you had to stop, get back on there, join the $5 level to get the exclusive episode every week. You can hang out in a chat room with other listeners and me and Will, or join the $10 level and get the newsletter that goes out every month, printed, and is sent to your mailbox. All right, and back to our regular scheduled programming. Well, the hot new movie out this week is called Detective Pikachu. Pokemon, gotta catch them all. Pokemon. Uh, I didn't like Pokemon growing up. You didn't? No, you know, it was... I'm sorry, I'm watching my Woody Allen films right now. Well, okay, you you say that, but... uh, I'm not lying. But actually, 
was airing on the same during the same time slot that it was on was Monty Python's Flying Circus when mm. I was a kid, and I used to watch that, which. You know, fourth grade was a little lonely at times, but but I, <laughs> but I knew I was better than everybody else. <laughs> I did, and you know what? I think time has vindicated me. <laughs> has it? Let's look at the box office of Detective Pikachu. So I wanted to talk about this because Detective Pikachu's coming out, and Pokemon is one of those things that consumed me as a child. I had one of the a video games. You had the red and the blue? Yeah, I think I probably had blue. Okay. And uh, I watched a cartoon and played every day. And I, all the games and merchandise. It was endless. Played the Pokemon card game? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember all that shit. But, I hated it all. <laughs> yeah. Why can't there be a Monty Python? But I like Monty Python, too. Can't we like both? Uh, you know, I... It was hard when I was in fourth grade and there was the thing that I loved passionately and everybody else was watching Pokemon at the same time. Well, you can't do both because I did. Because I love Monty Python. Well, passionately. okay, here's the thing. I, I tried Pokemon. Oh, and you didn't like it. I You're watched like, I watched This the is cartoon. a baby game. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know. I fucking, I fucking hated everything about it. And then, and then <laughs> one of the great moments of my childhood was uh, some kid at a birthday party. Well, actually, it wasn't some kid. It was my good friend, Peter. Uh, we, <laughs> Peter Kaposky. Not Peter Kaposky. Another Peter. Uh, and, and we went to see Pokemon the first movie. Oh, I saw that too. You got a free card if you went early. I don't remember that. Ah, big, big moment of my What childhood. I remember was it had a short subject, Pikachu's vacation at the beginning. Do you remember that? No. Well, so Pokemon the first movie is like an hour long. And there's <laughs> yes. this half hour short at the beginning. Anyway, we went to see it. Everybody hated it. All, mm. all the kids at the party thought it was stupid. And I felt like, yes, finally. <laughs> Finally, we're on the same page about this fucking franchise. Wow, so vindictive. Uh, but anyway. Sorry, we opened a dark hole into Will's childhood. Yeah, I, don't, I hate it. I've always hated it. We'll always hate it. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I loved Pokemon when I was a kid, but unlike, and I have no interest in it now. That's and interesting. That, yeah, I have no nostalgia. Like, ah, yes, remember Pokemon. I like to relive it. It's one of those things that eh, I move past it. It continued to exist after I stopped caring about it. Do you dislike it? No. Um, what do you think it was about it? Why didn't you bring it with you as you grew up? I don't know. Um, I mean, it had everything. I'm shocked you didn't like it. Japanese monsters, tons of them. It almost sounds like it was popular and it was something that like, but you liked something else. So you hated it because that was the popular so there's thing. There's a bit of that, but also I, fa- I frankly found Pokemon too complicated for what the rewards were. Oh. Like you had a red video game and a blue video game. 151 monsters that you needed to know the names of? Yeah. I would have thought you would have jumped right into that because like the little Godzilla monsters. Well, I like Godzilla. Yeah. But, and, and all I can say to that is I will put Godzilla up against Pokemon any day of the week. Godzilla, he's a big guy who's knocking over buildings. So he's like the, the adult monster <laughs> and Pokemon are the childish monsters. Godzilla's really cool. <laughs> I know. I'm just trying to see like where the uh, dissonance it, is. It here. is a little arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I was. They're never, too cute. I was never moved by the story of Pokemon. <laughs> but you were moved by that of Godzilla. Yeah, of course. He's a big <laughs> nuclear monster. He's, he's Japan's, um, you know, nuclear excesses coming back. But I mean, like Pokemon. I've actually never thought about it until like this point. Where we started talking about Detective Pikachu and being like, and I was like, man, I don't know. I don't care. Uh, is do you have anything like that that you love passionately as a kid? Because you seem to have taken all that stuff with you. Oh yeah, there were definitely things that I didn't. Well, I mean, there that culture has continued. I mean, that's like a big ask. But... Um. Well, I mean, there there are certain things that like there are certain incarnations of Batman that I still love. Yeah. But then, um, 
do I do I still care about Batman in the present tense? Not as much. And some of that might have to do with the fact that Batman is like an enormous cult has never stopped being an enormous cultural force. Yeah. Like the, the Batman things I like, like Adam West, mm-hmm. they feel kind of like they're mine a little bit, you know, but they still continue to exist. Like the yeah. Batman 66 comics, there's animated movies, yeah. even something like detective Pikachu. It is all the original Pokemon from when I was a kid. It's not the other million variations that have shown up since then. Did this, out of curiosity, does detective Pikachu rub you the wrong way at all? The fact that it's like a comedy and it's Ryan Reynolds. No, I don't doing, care. Doing comedy voices. <laughs> I, could, I, I think I should, take the like they should take it seriously i think there's something like 22 pokemon movies at this point uh-huh. they can do whatever they want okay i i asked that because like because it's it's this version maybe mm. it isn't hitting the nostalgic pleasure no for you. because yeah. when i see the stuff that i loved as a kid in the cartoon that i watch endlessly every day i have i've had no need to go back to it yeah <laughs> the only time i thought about pokemon is just the classic like philosophical argument of Wait, they capture monsters and force them to fight until they pass out? <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of nostalgia, when I first uh, realized that YouTube was a thing, mm. it absolutely blew my mind that I could go on YouTube and see the opening titles of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. <laughs> and I watched it like over and over again, and it was like such a nostalgic overload. And I feel like having YouTube... Like you can have a nostalgic overload every day if you want, and but it but it leaves, loses all meaning. Exactly, though. it's not special anymore. It's like it's like we're living in Ready Player One. <laughs> yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just thinking too. I'm like, wait, what other stuff that I really loved as a kid? And like, uh, I mean, anime wise, Dragon Ball, I was obsessed with. I've not gone back to that ever. Mm. And I wonder if it's like the proliferation of that, kind of like the way that you hated Pokemon so much that it is still everywhere, and that you when you grow up as a kid, like. That may be one of the only things you can watch. Like that'll play. Like I remember Dragon Ball played at like six in the morning yeah. on some little channel yeah. somewhere, and it feels special that way. And then when everybody uses, uh, like, consumes it and loves it, you're like, oh, that's fine. But now I have other things I can like, and you yeah. can like more laser focus into the things that really appeal to you. Oh, by the way, I've come up with an answer to your question. Oh, nice. That I loved passionately as a kid and didn't bring with me. This was one of the first things I ever really cared about when mm. I was like three or four years old. Cars. what yes cars um i was obsessed with cars when i was like three and i knew what all the logos were wow Uh, i loved looking at the wheels section of the newspaper i had a lot of like little hot wheels cars um i loved the bmw logo the best i had i had a lot of hot wheel cars as well and you would build like tracks and they could do loops and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but i think it was more out of i was a kid so people bought me cars and i played with them not a particular love for them i was very fascinated by car trucks you know car trucks like you know those big trucks that carry like six yeah. or seven cars like yeah and you'd get them and you'd put all your cars in them and you can drive around or on... when you see them on the highway oh like, even like in real life yeah i was like whoa look at all those cars it, um, i had a weird i mean it's not something that i still love them but i had a, an obsession with sharks when i was a kid in the way that huh. like like i i would c- collect hockey cards of the of the uh, San uh, Jose Sharks just because it was a shark logo for no other reason. I didn't know anything else about the team. Yeah. Such a weird thing to like focus in on. No, I totally get that. I mean, kids like <laughs> uh, 
kids are a lot into themselves. They what about think, kids like, today, though? Because they can have whatever they want. Well, kids today, what they like are those like pew pew die <laughs> auto generated videos of like cartoon characters killing each other and like they're pregnant and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, and Mumu is that what the character is called? Momo. Who's the character that kills you? Oh no, yeah, yeah, the fake um, viral videos. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're into. I'm glad that we can talk like 90 year old men <laughs> who don't know what's going on because that's what we are.